0: Uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 32, second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 32. And um, this morning, we're going we're to look at a pervasive theme that flows from the fact that God is a loving Father. And the theme is this, God loves to bless people. God loves to bless people. Uh, And some of you are thinking, why did I show up to church? I could turn on the TV this morning and hear about 35 famous, world-famous preachers. That's all they preach about. Um, Well, it won't be exactly the same as the TV preachers this morning. Um, But what's fascinating is, is if you look at the biblical precept of blessing, one of the fundamental surprises is that God blesses two kinds of people. God, of course, blesses people who obey and trust him. Lots of text on that. Um, But amazingly enough, God also blesses those who neither acknowledge and even rebel against him. Look at the text, you probably know Jesus' teaching from Matthew chapter five. Here it is in the the great sermon on the mount. For God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's right. God blesses both the just, in the old English, the just and the unjust. And this is called, the theologians call this common grace. And God spreads it as I love the old English term, God spreads his common grace broadcast throughout the whole earth. Everybody gets the great benefit of God being good even though humanity is fallen. A remarkable thing. If you have ever been to Alaska, imagine that that's fallen Alaska. The magnificence The beauty that God has prevented the enemy from utterly destroying is remarkable, and everybody gets to benefit from it. So, um, here's the mystery, though: Why does He bless good people and hose bad people? That's a mystery, right? That's every other religion other than scriptural, other than the Scripture. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. God has a will, you get crushed if you don't follow it, you get good things if you do, and you spend your whole life trying to get good things from God. Biblical faith is nothing like that. He spreads his grace universally, hoping for those who will simply receive it. Uh, So here's, here's the mystery, ready? Here's your first blanks. Why God blesses the unrighteous. You see, it's not about us, Ready? Because blessing, even undeserving people, is fundamental to God's nature. By the way, even if you've lived a Christian life for a really long time and you're close to the Lord, aren't you glad that God blesses undeserving people? Because even the just and the unjust that Jesus preached about are all undeserving, all fallen. The just are only just because they've been transformed by the grace of God, which is all of God. So... Um, Because of this, God's blessing all of humanity. But this morning, I want to focus on the blessing that God pours out on those who follow him. And you may be surprised to find out that God has put himself in all kinds of quandaries, right? I mean, what a great idea. Give humans free will so they can reject him. I mean, what kind of idea was that? Look around the world. And I mean, lots of philosophers have dealt with the issue of, man, did he mess up with that? Right, I mean, he could have kept the world perfect by his sheer power. No mess. But then nobody could freely love him either. We would have been a bunch of robots. So you see all these complicated things, but you ready? Um, when God blesses his people with good things, he actually creates a dilemma for himself. Here it is. It's your next blanks, ready? It's a complication of God's blessings. What God gives us for our good talk about ironic, can easily become our God. What God gives us for our good can easily become our God. I told you it's not going to be like the TV preachers. See, this reveals the blessing paradox. Ready, here's your, next, here's your next blanks. The blessing paradox, the good things God gives us can end up replacing him as the center of our life. Let me say that again. The good things God gives us can end up replacing him as the center of our life. Isn't it amazing? It's a complication for God to bless us. <laughs> and yet, because of who he is, he can't help himself. He just spreads his blessings Everywhere. Now to illustrate this, uh, Exodus chapter thirty-two uh, uh, in your Bible or your e-Bible, um, look at the first uh, few verses. This is an infamous idolatry uh, story. Look at this. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled around Aaron and said to him, "Come, make us a god who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him." And Aaron said to them, "Tear off the uh, Tear off the gold rings which are on your ears and the, you, the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters. Some things never change now, right? We've got sons with earrings now too. And bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and he took uh, this from the hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf and they said, ready? This... Little gold thing? This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Probably the most brain dead statement in the history of the world. This is your God who brought you out of slavery. Are you kidding me? Now, after God has done all of the amazing things, after their incredible deliverance from slavery, and the mighty wonders that took place to get them out of their bondage, how could they possibly abandon God so quickly for such a pathetic idol? So let's go way back in the story. Turn with me back to Exodus chapter one, back to the beginning of the book of Exodus. Um, And uh, here we start to understand how the Hebrews have gotten to this point. As you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Lived in Canaan, but many years of famine, years of famine, and the Joseph, the amazing Joseph story, got them into Egypt. So after 430 years now since that happened, there are uh, somewhere between one and two million Israelites living in Egypt, and their entire existence has been complete misery. Look at this: Chapter one, verse eight. Now, a new king arose over Egypt, and he did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply in the event of war, and also join themselves to those who hate us, and fight against us, and depart from the land. Down to verse 13. And the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter, and hard labor in mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed upon them. But amazingly enough, their wonderful God heard their cries. So we move forward in time. Now the 40 years nearly where Moses killed an Egyptian, Pharaoh chases him, he's gone to the land of Midian and he's basically been a shepherd there for 40 years. So that's that's where we are, so. Um, so look at verse, uh, chapter three with me, chapter three. God has a plan. Verse nine, chapter three, verse nine. And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel have come up to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh, God speaking to Moses. I'll send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Look at verse now 13 with me. Moses said, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And Moses said to him, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am sent me to you. Now look at verse 18. And they will pay heed to you, And you and the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, so now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go." Look at verse uh, 18 with me now. Okay, no, we already did that. So look at this. Despite their lack of faith, amazingly enough, God came through big time. Now go over to chapter 13. Lots happening in between. Just kind of perusing the story, but looking at some of the details. Look with me at chapter 14, verse 10. Ah, no, 13, verse 18, verse. God led them out the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. 13 verse 18, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Now verse 21, and the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and a pillar of fire by night to lead them by night, that they might travel by day and by night. So Pharaoh lets them go, and now he has a change of heart, and so he pursues them, and they're trapped at the shores of the Red Sea. Ready, Exodus chapter 14 verse 10, as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now verse 13. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you Keep silent. And then came one of the most amazing events in the history of the world. Look at verse 21, the next paragraph. Then Moses atta- uh, stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind at night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. And the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. I, if I'd had time, I would have shown you a video. Uh, I love the video uh, 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 imaging of this that's occurred through the years. Look at this. Then the Egyptians, verse 23, took up pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, went after them in two... The midst of the sea. Look at verse 26 now, next paragraph. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters will come back and the Egyptians and will come over the Egyptians, their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Finally, verse 31, last verse in that chapter. And When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So God has shown them that nothing can stand against him and they are in awe. They're they're in just utter awe and they believe him. But then, after this great deliverance, something comes up to test their faith. They've made it through the the Red Sea. They've got this amazing miracles that are happening, but but here comes their first test of faith. Look in chapter 15, verse 22. Last paragraph or next to the last paragraph there. Then Moses uh, led the sons of Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink of the Waters of Mara, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. This is classic Hebrew style that Mara in Hebrew means bitterness. So they just called the place bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord, <laughs> Pastor Kurt, there's a long group of people who are right with you. Oh God, these people. <laughs> So he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree and he threw it into the waters and the waters became sweet. Pretty impressive. Red Sea, Pharaoh's taken care of. We want water, wah, wah, wah. Okay, I'll be good to you, I'll bless you even though your wine are grumblers. Ah, beautiful, tasting, sweet water. But after they drank the delicious water, guess what? They got hungry. So the Lord responded to their need. Look at chapter 16, verse 13. So it came about an evening when the quails came up. Quail, you know how much does it cost to buy quail at a restaurant nowadays? 50 bucks? I mean, this is good food. So it came about that evening. that The quails came up and covered the camp. In the morning, there was... um, There was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? By the way, classic Hebrew, right? Do you know what manna means? Manna means, what is it? So that's how they named things. For they did not know what it was, and Moses said to them, this is, is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. So the Lord came through, think about this, again and again and again, they repeatedly experienced the incredible truth that, that Abraham had heard from the angel of the Lord, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Splitting seas, delivering you, wiping out the most powerful army in the world, nothing is impossible for God. But despite this, All it took for them to forget everything was was for their human leader to go away for a little while. You may remember that God invited Moses up to the mountain. He was going to give him the tablets of of the Ten Commandments and the covenant. But while Moses was gone, the Israelites showed how quickly they could dump God and accept substitutes for God. And during his absence, we come back to right where we began, go back to, Chapter 32, look with me at verse 3 now. This is where we began. Look at this. Then all the people, now knowing the details of the backstory, and this isn't even all the miracles of deliverance. Look at this. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and he took them from the land, their land at hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, I want to stop for a minute. Let's estimate the monetary value of the golden calf. No way to know. We don't know the proportions. But if it was only, get this, if it was only one foot tall and it was normally proportioned, one foot tall and actually looked like a calf, if he was that good of an artist, and it was made of gold, in today's dollars, it would be worth somewhere between 5 and $20 million. Dollars. That's a lot of gold and a lot of money. And now let's notice something that's really easy to miss. Look again at verse 3. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Think about how absurd this verse is. They're impoverished slaves. They had no gold, they had no jewelry. So notice it's the you ready is in your notes it's the unasked question in the golden calf story where in the world did they get all that gold well it turns out that if you go back to where finally, finally pharaoh said they could leave egypt after the plagues the egyptians they were incredibly ready to get rid of the jews and so they said, Yeah, wow, go for it. Please leave. We're done with the plagues. We don't want to see number 11. And now Moses instructed Israel to make a ridiculous request from the Egyptians on their way out of town. Look with me. Go back to chapter 12, chapter 12 of Exodus. And here's, here they are. They're, they're leaving town, right? Um, and uh, I love this. This is great. Look at chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 35. Verse 35. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor. Isn't that amazing? He gave the Hebrews favor in the sight of the Egyptians. This has nothing to do. Remember, the day before, the week before, the decade before, the century before, the Hebrews were worth less to the Egyptians than their dogs were worth to them. All of the favor of God, look at this, so that they let them have their request. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Amazing. So, here's the answer to the unasked question here's your blanks. All of their gold, in quotes, all of their gold came to them purely by the gift of God's favor. Listen, church. So let's stop and think about who they were before God came on the scene. They were slaves, children of slaves, grandchildren of slaves, but God delivered them. He showed them what an amazing savior he is. And on top of that, God has now made them rich. Huge amounts of gold and silver and jewelry and clothing. Amazing. And notice, they didn't earn their gold. Their gold came to them by the wonderful benevolence of a gracious God. Their treasures came to them by the bountiful hand of their possessions, and folks, their possessions weren't theirs. I didn't have time, but oh my, Deuteronomy 8. It is so about America. When you come into the land, and you live in houses that you have not built, and all that you touch, all you touch turns to wealth and riches be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God who gave you the ability to have this wealth. A stunning parallel to what's going on here. Think of this. Their treasures came to them from God's hands. They're, ready? Their possessions, listen church, their possessions weren't theirs. Their possessions belonged to someone else. So here's the bottom line of the golden calf event. Here's your blank, ready? God's people made the gold that he gave them into an idol. God's people made the gold that he gave them into an idol. A little uncomfortable, isn't it? And now, let's think back to the complication of God's blessing. What God gives us for our good can easily become our God. And remember the blessing paradox? The good things that God gives us can end up replacing him at the center of our lives. But guess what? This isn't just an old dusty story, is it? It's as contemporary as the struggle that many of us even have today as we ponder what we're going to do about God and his money that he has given to us. Now, financial giving is not the main thrust of this message today. Many of you will be relieved. Um, You were hoping it wouldn't be a tithing day. A message, Um, but the the think about this. Look at what the survey show. The average American churchgoer gives two percent of their income to God's work. Two percent. That's one fifth of the tithe, which is supposed to be the baseline foundation for people who utterly recognize that all of it belongs to Him, and it's simply a reminder that we're mere stewards, we're not owners. See, what's amazing is, in America, this is the same amount that the average non-believer gives to charity, same level of giving. But compare this to church history. You know, Christ's followers throughout the ages have been so enamored with who he is and what Jesus has done that we've always given generously, liberally, and sacrificially. That's the history of the church that was utterly given to Christ. And then, along came the wealthiest Christians who ever lived in human history. American Christians. And what have these Christians done? What Israel did, (laughs) we have taken the gold that God gave us and turned it into an idol. Let me just pause and let us let that sink in. Folks, we're not owners. We're only stewards of what he has given us. And now let's turn to the main focus. Relief for American Christians listening. <laughs> I want to make sure that we see that the main issue of idolatry is way more than about material possessions. And this brings us to the application. Here's your blanks, write it in. At its essence, all sin is merely a symptom of the far more fundamental issue of idolatry. That's right. Let's take a moment to let this sink in. All disobedience is idolatry. Wait, 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 wait. No, I thought that was that weird calf thing that they did a long time ago, and I never bow down to golden calves. Um, So to unpack this, I want us to look at three key concepts. Number one, here's your blank. Write it in. Sin isn't just a failure to obey God. Sin isn't just a failure to obey God. Sin isn't just rule-breaking. It's actually... Much, much deeper than that, and this is explained in number two, key concept number two, here's your blank. The essence of sin is actually replacing, you ready? The essence of sin is actually replacing God's rightful place in our life with something else. You could even say with anything else. You can even say replacing him with really good things. In fact, you can say that replacing him with the very blessings that he has given us can replace him. So sin is way more than just doing something that we're commanded not to do. It's actually, you ready? It's actually a displacement of God in our life. It's replacing the one true God with an alternate God. We don't call them gods, but they are gods with a little g. And folks, that's idolatry. When we replace, when we displace the one true God in our life with anything, even the best things, Anything, that is idolatry. So you may be familiar with Romans 3.23. We're gonna write in, go ahead, let's write in together the typical translation of Romans 3.23, you ready? For all have sinned and fall short, fall short of the glory of God. That's in a whole bunch of the translations. I even think that that is what the the, the, uh, King James, which is four centuries old, says. Um, um, But the meaning isn't clear with that translation of the uh, of the original Greek. See, in, in Greek, falling short sounds like missing the mark, like you aimed at a target and you, and you didn't shoot far enough, right? And that is certainly one of the meanings of the Greek term, but it isn't the primary meaning. By the way, the Greek word is hustaron tai. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, I'm one of those uh, Greek geeks. I'm not, I, I'm not yet, I don't really, really know it, but I know, I know how to read people who do really know it. Um, So, the word actually means, you ready? You know what the word actually means? It means to lack. To lack. To lack. L-A-C-K. So, ready? Here's the literal translation. Write it in. For all have sinned and lack the glory of God. Now, that can go right over our heads, but let me explain the profound, incredible meaning of that. This means that we could have had the glory of God. We could have basked in his beauty. We could have stood in awe of who he is. But instead, we chose something else. Something other than having the glory and the beauty and the wonder of God. We lack the glory because we chose something else. Key concept number three. Key concept number three. Ready? At its essence, sin is, this is going to surprise you, sin is an exchange. At its essence, sin is an exchange. We exchange experience God's incredible greatness for some pathetic, worthless counterfeit. And we see this very point made clear in, by the way, I don't know if you know, but Romans 1.23 says, is a theological perfect parallel to Romans 3.23, but it's way less famous, and it doesn't make as much sense until now when we understand what the Greek means about lacking the glory of God. Ready? Write it in. Here's, what, here's the point that's made clear in Romans 1.23. Write it in. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. And think about it. Yes, can the image be a little golden calf? Sure, it can be. But it can be any gold. It can be anything great. It can be any blessing. It can be, it can be a wife or a husband. It can be something incredibly wonderful. It can be, you know what? It can be ministry. There are some people who are so interested in ministering and working for God that they forget loving him because it becomes about success or whatever. It can be all of the good things. In fact, by the way, it really isn't. Cow manure that becomes a false god. It's good things like gold that God gives us. Isn't that amazing? So look at how I love, I love this concept. Um, What this means is instead of having Him, instead of having Him, we choose some cheap, valueless thing, or an experience, or a habit, or a pleasure, or even a relationship. Instead of having him, if any relationship displaces God, they are an idol. So, I love how theologian John Piper insightfully says this. It's in your blanks. This is so powerful. I'll read it twice because there's three blanks. Look at this. This is the deepest problem with sin. It's the exchange of God's infinite value and beauty for some fleeting inferior substitute. This is is the great insult. This is the deepest problem with sin. It's the exchange of God's infinite value and beauty for some fleeting inferior substitute. Notice the exchange? This, it's the displacement of God. This is the great insult. So the reason sin is such a crime is because it looks in the face of God who's offering Him very, his very self, and you know what it says? I want something else. Think of it. It's an exchange. This is the epitome of idolatry. It's the essence of exchanging the glory of God for an image. And Scripture tells us that it's impossible to live the Christ life while continuing to choose something else. You can't live the Christ life and exchange Christ at a whim for, oh, but now I want that instead of Christ for a while. That's not the Christ life. So, now we see how little we understand sin. Here we thought that it's just some trite little bending of a rule here and there that at night you go, now I daily let me down to sleep and you throw in other stuff and say, and forgive me for what I've done wrong. No, no. Sin is actually looking in the face of God and saying, I don't want you, I want that. Wow. God, forgive me. I have such a... Subtle, lukewarm view of what my disobedience means in the face of God. And there's a perfect illustration of this concept in an ancient biblical character. In Hebrews 12, the writer is talking about holiness. And then the text announces a man who was the opposite of, was antithetical to holiness. And here's what it says. Ready? (laughs) Look at this in Hebrews chapter 12. Talk about a hose job verse for one guy. See that no one is immoral or godless like Esau. Oh my goodness, I'm so glad it doesn't say like Dan. How about you? I mean, can you imagine the eternal word of God hosing you forever as immoral and godless? I mean, there it is, poor Esau. Now why was Esau the prime example of being godless? Yeah, if you know the story, he and his brother, you know, they had issues, right? And he certainly wasn't a superstar, for sure, of Old Testament figures, but why single Esau out? I mean, this doesn't make much sense. Well, let's pick up the story. Turn with me back to Genesis. here in Exodus. Turn to the book right before. First book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 25. And let's pick up the story where his previously barren mother, Rebecca, right? Parents are Rebecca and Isaac, and um, He's miraculously, the God has miraculously given twins to Rebecca and and to Isaac, and they are Jacob and Esau. So let's let's look at what the scripture says about these boys. Verse 27 of Genesis chapter uh, 25. Last paragraph there, right? When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for the game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. By the way, parents, always a disaster. Doesn't matter what the issue is, you do that. Kids learn that one parent loves me more than the other. It is a calamity that goes for generations in a family. Verse 29, and when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there. Ooh. For I am famished. Therefore, sounds scrumptious, doesn't it? Therefore, his name was called Edom, which is this classic Hebrew? That just means red. So they called him red, okay? But Jacob said, first, Sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. (laughs) Love that, don't you? He's he's a good Israelite before there's Israelites, right? Um, I'm about to die, so what, what uses the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Look at verse 30 again. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff <laughs> within the text we see great the great sin of esau ready write it in here's esau's great sin he sold his very birthright for some you ready red stuff esau surrendered his inheritance For red stuff, he exchanged the future, his whole future, for red stuff. Esau gave up all that was precious to him to fill his stomach. He sold, literally, he sold his birthright for the fleeting pleasure of temporarily fulfilling a desire. Listen, church. Gave his whole birthright away for it. Absolutely amazing. But how do we know that this was Esau's big sin? Right I, I, from, the, from the story, you can't tell this was his big sin. Well, the only way you can ever be truly confident of the interpretation of Scripture is when Scripture interprets itself, and that's exactly what Hebrews tells us. Now, not out of context, let's now look at the passage back from Hebrews 12. It's right in your notes. Look at this. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. So this is a section on the holy life. Look at this. Without holiness, an astounding earth-shattering statement. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So, see that no one is immoral. Now it's back to the, what we lifted, ready? See that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, for, here comes your blanks, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. This passage, think about it. It shows an amazing contrast. It's, first, it's a renowned passage on holiness. But notice, when the writer picks an example of the opposite of holiness, guess who they don't pick? They don't pick Pilate. They don't pick Pharaoh. They don't pick Jezebel. They don't even pick, they don't even pick Judas, right? And they don't pick a prostitute. They don't pick a drunkard. They don't pick a thief or a murderer, Whoever wrote the Hebrews, you know what? The person says, the person who is held up as the example of being immoral and godless is the one, ready, who exchanged something of enormous value for a counterfeit. He exchanged his entire inheritance for a single meal. And now, look at key concept number three again. Look what you wrote in. At its essence, Sin is an exchange—an exchange of something priceless for something that we want. Pastor Josiah, come on up. So we've been offered the great, the greatest inheritance imaginable. We've been given the birthright of living for eternity in the home of the King of the Universe. Did you hear that, church? Our birthright is living in the home of the king of the universe. Our Father's will and testament says this. Listen to what God's will, his will and testament says. He says, to them I bequeath all the riches of heaven. In fact, to them I give myself, all of me. So look at the great tragedy of sin. Imagine us looking at our incredible birthright And then looking at the things of this world and forfeiting our entire priceless inheritance for, for, ready? Some red stuff. Listen, church. Right now, some in a group this big and online and those who will watch in the future, some of us may be risking our marriage, you ready? For a little bit of red stuff. Oh, God, help us. Some of us are risking our entire family's future for some red stuff. What are we doing? Some of us may be forfeiting the purity of our mind and body for a bit of red stuff. Some of us may be destroying our future for a bit of red stuff. Some of us folks are risking our relationship with Jesus, you ready, for some red stuff. Some of us like Esau, have risked our very birthright of eternal life for the fleeting pleasure of temporarily satisfying a desire. Now, throughout all of history, all the way back to the serpent in the garden, by the way, the Esau story is merely the Adam and Eve story in more detail. Ready? Think about this. The whole purpose of the enemy in all of human history has been to deceive humans into an exchange An exchange, right? An exchange of walking in Eden in perfect communion with the Creator in a place like Alaska before it fell. In perfection. You ready? And what did they exchange it for? One lousy bite of fruit. Think of it. Listen to Piper again. This is the deepest problem with sin. It's the exchange of God's infinite value and beauty for some fleeting substitute. This is the great insult. Instead of having him, we chose a cheap, valueless thing or an experience, a habit, a pleasure, or a relationship. We actually look into the face of our perfect, gracious, self-sacrificing Savior, Jesus, and we say, I don't want you, I want that. Exchange. Remember what I said when we started this morning? Our real problem isn't actually sin. Sin is only the symptom of our real problem. Our real problem is idolatry, replacing God with something else. And now, having studied the golden calf and the red stuff passages, we're ready to see the depths of humanity's problem. Look at this. These stories give us a glimpse of the history of idolatry. We bow down, ready? We bow down to the worthless when we could have had the priceless. We bow down to the insignificant when we could have lived in the presence of the only one who ever gives anything its significance. We bow down to a pathetic bowl of red stuff, ready? When we could have had all the riches of the kingdom of God. Sin isn't the real problem. It's a symptom of the exchange. I don't want you. I want that. In a moment we're going to sing. And as we do, I'd like each of us to think about the things that we're allowing God to take uh, to take uh, take the place of God in our lives. Think about right now, start thinking. Think about what counterfeit gods are lurking around in your choices and decisions. Because that's what they are. They're counterfeit gods. And in these moments, as you identify them, ask the Holy Spirit to cleanse your heart and to become the center of everything so that you can actually experience the glory of the incorruptible God in your life. Stand with me. Didn't actually plan an altar call, but if you want to come during this time, I want all of us to be asking, Lord, What's lurking around the edges that's actually an exchange? What's actually where I'm saying, nah, I thought I wanted God, but no, no, I really want that. Just open, open your heart and your mind, and as the Holy Spirit convicts all of us, and if you want to come to the altar, it's always open as you know, but let's sing together, and let's mean the words that are easy to sing. Pastor Josiah.